Well, good morning all. It's my privilege to bring the, well, the, the Bible reading this morning and it comes from Colossians chapter. And I'll be reading from verse 15 through to 23. <clears throat> he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Phil. Bring the message you're welcome to. Good. Great. just want to say as well as we get underway, we had a fantastic men's camp over the last couple of days, and it's great to see so many of the people involved in this morning's service uh, were actually away with us on camp. Uh, Ken at the back there doing the sound, Brad up here with the music, uh, both Joel and Laz, whose families uh, enjoyed baptism this morning, and Phil, who's just read... We had a fantastic time. We hope to get more guys away next year on our next men's camp. And also, just as we get underway, uh, we had a baptism service today. Next week, we've got a membership service, uh, which is another very exciting time. So do be with us to enjoy that and to encourage those who are uh, professing faith publicly and committing it to us as a church family as we commit to them. Well, let's pray as we get into the epistle to the Colossians this morning. And ask ask for God's help as we read his word. Let's pray. Almighty God, please be generous to us, your servants, today. Bible, please open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your word for the purpose of living it and keeping it. And this we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, some of you might know, when I was a student, I lived in London, and when I was studying, I worked part-time at a small optician shop, a little boutique optician shop, just around the corner from the famous department store, Harrods. Uh, and it was one of those little shops that was tucked away, but uh, the favorite haunt of a number of uh, famous clientele. We had owners of Formula One teams among our, among our clients. We had uh, musicians and actors and other socialites and celebrities, uh, Middle Eastern royalty. It was quite an interesting place to work. I met all sorts of interesting people. But one day, uh, an Indian family came in to buy glasses from us. A number of the members of the family had their eye tests done. They bought their glasses. Uh, when it came time to pay, an elder member of the family stepped forward. He was very well-dressed, but you know, in a kind of understated way, very unassuming, very kind, gentle, handed me his credit card to pay, swiped it through the machine, and they went on their way. And of course, only afterwards did I discover who Mr. Tata actually was. 
Ratan Naval Tata was at the time the chairman of the Tata group of companies. Uh, you've probably heard of the Tata Motors group who make cars. Well, they also own Jaguar and Land Rover. They also own Tetley's Tea and all the Starbucks coffee shops in India. Mr. Tata was the chairman of that group. He was also the recipient of two of India's highest civilian awards. He's also the first Indian gentleman to pilot an F-16 jet fighter. His company, one of the biggest corporate groups in the world, has interests in finance, steel, motor vehicles, consumer products, catering, engineering, hotels, logistics, real estate, and airlines, to name a few. In 2020, they posted a revenue of 106 billion US dollars and employed 750,000 people. And actually, Mr. Tata was well known for his humble and unassuming character. In fact, uh, here, and here's a picture he regularly flew economy class on the airlines owned by his company. Someone managed to grab a selfie with him there. And here was I, standing next to him holding his credit card. And I had no idea who I was standing next to until much, much later. I had a suspicion he was someone important, but I quite literally had no idea. Now, in our today, Paul wants the Colossian believers to stop for a moment and think about the Jesus they know. Consider who he actually is. This part of God's word wants us to look beyond the, the baby in the manger, the Jewish carpenter's son, the itinerant preacher and miracle worker, the man upon the cross even, and, and see him as he actually is. As the whole story of the Bible reveals him to be, the supreme head of everything. It's been said that you know, Colossians and Ephesians, they kind of go together in the Bible. They're very similar books. But where Ephesians is about the church of Christ, the book of Colossians is a bit like, is a bit about the Christ of the church. He is the supreme head of everything. And here in our reading today, the Bible wants to blow any small notions that we have of Jesus out of the water and to replace them with an accurate and massive and majestic view of the Jesus who is God himself and heir of all things now and forever. And so that's what we're going to do today as we get into this passage. Now, I know we do this every week, but to know where we've come from, uh, stories so far, we've been surveying the message of the whole Bible this last term to see how it helps us understand Jesus, how the whole Bible actually is about Jesus from its earliest pages. Who he would be and what he would do is promised as early back as the first few chapters of Genesis. We find that God meets the first sin with justice, but he also meets it with grace. And he promises that he will provide a way for sin, death, and the devil to be defeated forever so that God's people can enjoy being in God's place under God's rule and blessing forever. And that's really the message of the Bible. And so last week we looked at how Jesus' mission through suffering and death and resurrection is what ultimately proves that he is the Christ, God's promised King and Savior who would bring all this about. But we've got to remember that the Bible doesn't end at the Gospels. And that's because God's plan doesn't end with the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. His plan and purpose is bigger than that, quite simply because Jesus is bigger than that. 
you know, we, we enjoy reading with our kids uh, the Ruhl Dahl books. And a while ago, we were reading Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It's a great book. Uh, but towards the end, Charlie gets into the glass elevator with Mr. Willy Wonka. And, you know, the elevator kind of can go anywhere in the factory. And they press a few buttons, and it's shooting up to the top floor. But you know what? It doesn't stop at the top floor. Uh, to everyone's surprise, and even to Mr. Wonka's surprise, who invented the elevator, it shoots through the top of the elevator shaft, crashes through the ceiling, and goes into orbit. I think that's the way we've got to think about the Christ of Scripture. He, doesn't, he isn't bound by two leather covers. He actually just shoots right through the roof into this amazing, majestic orbit over the entire universe. And so today's, in today's passage, we're into the New Testament letters, Getting towards the end of the Bible, we'll finish our series next week in Revelation. Jesus has ascended to heaven, he's promised to return, and his followers have been equipped by the Spirit to make disciples of nations, uh, proclaiming the gospel until Jesus returns. A bit of background about the letter to the Colossians. The church was about 10 years old when Paul wrote this letter to them in the 60s AD. Uh, the church itself, Colossae, it was a little city in Asia Minor, which is today Turkey in the Anatolian region. And Paul's writing in these four chapters to address unbiblical teaching that had crept into the church. We, we've got very little idea of what the unbiblical teaching actually was, but the remedy is absolutely crystal clear from these four chapters. And the remedy is to see Christ as the head and Lord of everything. A bigger, better view of the Lord Jesus Christ. So please do have a Bible open with you. Please have your order of service open. You'll find an outline uh, of this morning's message. If you want to take notes, you're welcome to do that. We're going to start in verse 15 of chapter 1. It was after greeting the Christians at the church in Colossae and sharing how he and Timothy had been praying for them, Paul gets right down to business, gets right down to talking about Jesus. So verse 15 uh, that Phil read for us. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together." quite a CV, isn't it? And you know, it, it can have us thinking, you know, is this really the baby in the manger? Is this really the Jewish carpenter's son from Nazareth? Is this really the man dying on the cross? You know, the Bible's answer is yes, it is. Yes, the Bible makes the audacious claim that this Jesus, this same Jesus, is in fact the eternal creator God himself, but revealed in a way that we can relate to and understand and see. And you know, this is, this is the only way I think we can make sense of the Jesus of the Bible. It's the only explanation of why Jesus can completely heal sick people, uh, quadriplegics. He can tell them, get up and walk, and they do. It's the only explanation of why he can command demons to leave someone, and they're terrified and obey. It's the only reason that he can command a dead person to get up and live. It's the only reason Jesus can stand on the edge of a boat and shout into a storm, quiet, and the storm does. 
you know, we could try that, seriously. We could, you know, good old Queensland summer storm, we could go stand on the beach and shout into the wind, be quiet! And I'm, I'm pretty sure I know what would happen. Nothing. <laughs> we, could, we could tell COVID-19 to get lost. I think I know what would happen. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> but why should those things listen to Jesus? Well, quite simply because, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. And verse 16, by him all things were created. He's their boss. They have to listen to him. It's probably worth saying something here about the claims of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses regarding these verses. You might have had a knock on the door by a Jehovah's Witness at some point claiming that Jesus, yes, he's the firstborn of all creation, but he certainly is not God. But I think from what we see here, that doesn't make any sense of the Bible. It doesn't make any sense of the things that Jesus said and did when he was on earth. And, you know, these verses don't allow us to reduce Jesus like that, to a created being. He cannot be the one all things were created and still himself be part of that all things. It doesn't make sense. All things cannot be created through him and for him if he is is part of the all things. He cannot be the one in whom all things hold together if he's part of the all things. And so we've got to understand firstborn in verse 15, not as, as a sequential thing. This isn't the order of things created. It's not about that at all. Firstborn is about heritage and lineage. The firstborn son, by rights, inherits the father's wealth. It belongs to the father. And so in the same way, Jesus is the rightful heir of everything that belongs to God. And this explains then what Paul says next in verse 16, that Jesus is over and above and has authority over and owns everything, even worldly powers. And, you know, I think this is something as Christians we need to stop and take note of. Because there's a lot of fear about powers and authorities and rulers and dominions in our world today. Christians are scared about the powers, visible and invisible, arising in our worlds. We fear visible things, various governments and political powers and the influence of big business and loud militant pressure groups armed to the teeth with ideological agendas. We fear them. And we fear invisible things, the the kind of puppeteers we suspect might be pulling the strings behind the visible powers, the secret societies, conspiracy theories, even Satan himself. What does the Bible say? It says that Jesus is before it all, above it all, over it all, better than it all, and has authority over it all. And in fact, these things will come and go, but the world will carry on because it's held together only by Jesus. Without Jesus, everything falls apart, even though other things come and go, other powers come and go. Jesus is supreme over the created world. He is God, but he is God in creation. That's who Jesus is. 
You know, Blaise Pascal was a famous 17th century physicist and mathematician. Uh, If you've ever pumped up your tires on your own, you might see a little HPA unit of measurement on the side of your tires. HPA stands for hectopascal. Uh, It's the guy who gave us a unit of measurement that we use for pressure even today. He was an important guy. He studied God's created world, and listen to what he said. He said, Jesus Christ is the center of everything and the object of everything. No him knows nothing of the order of nature and nothing of himself. That's a strong statement from someone who knows. Of course, the question remains is why Jesus in all his greatness would actually want to kind of get his hands dirty by entering the creation in the first place. I mean, if he's the heir, the firstborn son of God, why, why not just stay in the Father's house and enjoy all the functions? Why on earth would he want to get his hands dirty down here? Well, it's because there was a plan, and the plan was not just for Jesus to be supreme over the creation, but for Jesus to be supreme over God's new creation. And so this is the second point in our outline for today. We're looking at verse 18 of Colossians chapter 1. This is what it says. The head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, it might seem a bit strange to suddenly drop the church in here. It makes more sense if we remember the church is not an organization or a building even, or, or worse, a business. We've got to remember the church is a body. and It's made up of everyone who God has saved and will save through faith in Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension all the way through history until Jesus comes. That's, that's the church, what we sometimes call the, the invisible church. And Jesus is... So it's not actually saying so much about the church, it's saying something about Jesus. And you know, when we think about the head of the body, it's the one bandage that we will struggle to live without. People have limbs amputated all the time. A head amputation doesn't go very well usually. It's because the head is where everything else finds its center and, and motivation and control and all that kind of stuff. Jesus is the head of the body. Next sentence says, because he is the firstborn from the dead. It's the second time that word is used in this section. I wonder if you noticed that. Firstborn and firstborn. Must be important. Of course, Jesus wasn't the first person to rise from the dead. There's lots of other people in the Bible who were raised from the dead. Jesus himself raised them from the dead. But Jesus is the first one to be raised from the dead, never to die again. Raised to new life in God forever. And this makes him the beginning and head of God's new creation. As it says there, preeminent. And this is why he's described as, again, as firstborn. Remember, it's about heritage. Jesus' firstbornness here means that he receives something from God which belongs only to God. And he receives it by rights of who he is. And the reason for that right is described for us in verse 19 and 20. That God's fullness was pleased to dwell in him. 
for the purpose of reconciliation. Now, in many ways, verse 20 is the key, key verse for this whole section. If you take nothing away from this, learn verse 20. Remember back in Genesis 3, sin put all of creation and human beings themselves at odds with God. That whole relationship was the whole created order was put on its head. And because of sin, it meant that only God could provide the means to deal with the debt, to pay the debt. So the Lord of heaven pours himself into a human being, one of Eve's offspring. And that human being goes to the cross as a substitute sacrifice, suffering there for sin. And as his blood is shed, the debt is paid. And we are reconciled to God, and peace is restored. And of course, that human being's name is Jesus. Verse 20 also tells us the scope of Jesus' reconciling work. It says that his reconciling work takes in all things. It doesn't mean that every single person on earth is going to be saved. But what it does mean is that there's no place in the, in the universe that is beyond the reach of this incredible saving work of Jesus. The end result of Jesus shedding his blood on the cross as the firstborn son and image of God, it will also be the judgment and removal of all evil and the effects of sin in the world and a new creation which is completely reconciled to God, a new universe which is completely God. And so just as Jesus is supreme over God's creation, so supreme over God's new creation. And you know, what, what Paul's saying here in these verses, in these, in these two sections, about Jesus being, on the one hand, supreme over creation, and on the other hand, supreme over God's new creation, I think it's captured really beautifully in a line from that old song by Graham Kendrick. Hands that flung stars into space to cruel nails surrender. And friends, we've got to have that vision of Jesus. We've got to understand that that is who Jesus is. And so, yes, he is supreme over God's creation. He is supreme over God's new creation. But then our third point this morning, and I've, I've changed the heading for this one, just a heads up. He's also supreme over salvation. So if you want to scratch that out in your outlines and change it, you're welcome to. He is supreme over salvation. Have a look with me at verse 21. Who once were alienated and hostile doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became... If you're a Christian here today, the scope of Jesus' reconciling work includes you as well. It doesn't just include the billions of light years of the universe, it includes you. Isn't that wonderful? Even though you didn't deserve it. Friends, every Christian was once a sinner, alienated from and hostile to God. And, you know, that even includes 
unfortunately, the kids we baptized this morning. That baptism didn't save them. And we're not just apathetic to God, not just agnostic, not just indifferent to God. It says there, hostile and evil before Christ saves us. And yes, the Lord Jesus Christ saves. And he saved you and me. And he has done everything necessary to do it. And you know, if, if firstborn is the idea that links the first two sections of this passage together, reconciliation is the idea that links sections two and three. What is Jesus' goal siling you to God? Well, there will come a day when Jesus will then present you to God, as it says there, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Above reproach means that no charge can be laid against you. And he will have done absolutely everything necessary to make make you a part of the new creation, of which he also is the firstborn and the head supreme. So you have been, if you're a Christian here, you have been reconciled to God by Jesus. You will in the future be presented to God by Jesus as holy and blameless. Well, what about the meantime? Well, verse 23, it says there, if, but we must realize it's not a condition of the success or failure of our reconciliation to God. It's not if we do this that, you know, Jesus' work will, will be completed. That would make absolute nonsense of what we've just read about how supreme Jesus is in our salvation. It would make nonsense about the great saving work of Christ and even about the supremacy of Jesus himself. You know, that, that the supreme Lord Jesus Christ has saved you and will present you to God one day, but you can still mess it up. That's nonsense. It doesn't make any sense of what is being said here about Jesus. It's no more an option than saying, great, Jesus has saved you, now you can do whatever you want. You'll see him at the end of the line. That doesn't work either, because if Jesus is supreme over your salvation, he's supreme over your life right now. And so what the Bible's saying here is that our past reconciliation and our future salvation will be shown to be genuine in the present by our patient constant, faithful trust in the gospel. The gospel that the Lord Jesus Christ is supreme over creation, supreme over the new creation, and supreme over my salvation. And then he will save me fully in the future when he returns. Friends, being clear about the absolute supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Bible is critical if we're going to make any sense of what the Bible says about Jesus. We've spent a number of weeks unpacking what the Old Testament says about Jesus, about the promises about Jesus, that he is God's promised king and savior, with his identity and mission being progressively revealed over thousands of years through God's dealings with his people Israel. So we finally get to Jesus in the New Testament, and Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the one we've been waiting for. But, you know, there is still a danger that we can arrive at the Christ of the New Testament. Maybe even in awe of the plan, in awe of the promises, but still fail to actually be in awe of Jesus. 
you know, at, at risk of stating the obvious, have a look with me at that passage again, verse, verse 15, from verse 15. I want you to follow along there, either on the sheet or in the Bible, and just listen as I read it. I'm going to read it wrong, but I'd like to make a point as I do this. This is what it doesn't say. He is the low-res copy of the invisible God, the firstborn of some of creation. For by him some things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Some things were created through him and for him. He is before some things, and in him some things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in some things he might be near the top of the pile. For in him the some of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself some things, whether on earth or in heaven. That's not what it says at all, is it? And what kind of a saviour is that anyway? It says over and over, all things, all things, fullness, because Jesus really is all that. But you know, even if we can read the words correctly, we can still be in the danger of having a some things Jesus instead of an all things Jesus, a small Jesus instead of a massive Jesus, majestic Jesus. We can be Christians who can, you know, who can do the sums, who can get to Jesus from anywhere in the Bible, even from the most obscure apocalyptic Old Testament passages. But we can still be too familiar with the idea of Jesus to appreciate just who these things are pointing to. I'll be honest with you, I get very nervous around Christians who are in awe of, of God or in awe of the Bible or in awe of theology but rarely, if ever, are in awe of Jesus. I think there are a few telltale signs of having a low and small and unbiblical view of Jesus. You know, when we, we talk more about Christianity than we talk about Christ. When we're more interested in knowing about Jesus than in knowing Jesus himself. When we want to see our world or our society subscribe to Christian values more than we wanted to see it ruled by Christ. When we allow him to reign over only some parts of our lives, maybe only Sundays, or over certain spaces like our homes, but not our workplaces or our classrooms. We have a low view of Jesus when we try to add to what Jesus has done, by, you know, earn God's favor by trying to do good things, by trying to be good people do Christian things. We've got a low view of Jesus when you think about sharing the gospel as winning an argument or getting a point across or just stating a set of facts instead of introducing someone to the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, because Jesus Christ is supreme over creation. He's supreme over God's new creation. He's supreme over the salvation of individuals. And only he is qualified and capable of fulfilling God's salvation plan, of reconciling someone to God and finally presenting them holy and blameless before him one day. You might think you know Jesus, but do you know, do you really know Jesus? Do you know this Jesus? The Bible's clear. If you don't know Jesus the way Paul describes him in Colossians 1, then you don't actually know him at all. 
If Jesus isn't the greatest, biggest, most majestic Lord of all to you, then I can guarantee you haven't really understood who Jesus is. You might know Jesus or have a suspicion that he's someone really important. But do you know him as the image of the invisible God? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't get any higher. Jesus is not one religious leader amongst many. He's not, even, he's not even in the same category as the Gandhis and Muhammads and others of this world. And you know, if you do recognize him as supreme over creation and supreme over God's new creation, of which you can be a part, and then the question for you is, has Jesus reconciled you to God and made peace between you and your creator by the blood of his cross? Today's a great day to do something about that. We celebrated the gospel today in baptism. We're talking about the gospel right now. It's all about Jesus ultimately. Why don't you do some business with God today and submit to the supreme Lord of everything? Pray to him and admit that you're a sinner in need of saving. Believe what the Bible says about Jesus and confess him as your Lord and King. If you want some help doing that, you've got questions, talk to a Christian friend perhaps, trusted Christian friend. You're welcome to get in touch with us after the service or give us a call or drop us a line during the week. I'd love to help you on that journey to just see just how amazing Jesus actually is. But be very careful of having a Jesus that is too small. The Bible doesn't give us that option. The Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that he achieves is bigger than we could possibly imagine. How about we pray? Father God, we thank you for the glorious condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he who is in very nature God didn't consider equality with you something to be grasped, but took on the form of a servant and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Father, we thank you that you didn't leave him there, but that you raised him from the dead, that he ascended on high, to your right hand, from where he will come to judge the living and the dead, the King of kings, before whom every knee will bow. Father, please forgive us for having a small view of Jesus, for having a kind of domesticated Jesus. And Lord, please fill us this morning with awe and wonder and worship of Jesus, the supreme Lord of everything. Father, please renew us in his service. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, in response to God's word now, we're going to stand together and sing.